Hello and welcome back to the Go Gamecocks podcast presented by the State Newspaper. I am your host, Greg Hadley, and I am joined by my co-worker slash roommate slash friend slash football aficionado, Ben Briner. Ben, how you doing? I think that makes me your football aficionado, which is very strange, but but yeah, we're still here. We are still here. Also, since we are roommates, we have no COVID worries during the recording of this podcast, so y'all can rest easy. Yeah, uh, obviously the first season of this podcast ended rather abruptly, along with most sports across America, but we are back because for the moment, in the SEC at least, college football is back on, and that gives us some stuff to talk about. It really does. It's kind of nice to be looking ahead and talking about stuff. Uh, is it going to hold together? Eh, who knows? Well, let, let's leave, let's uh, leave that for later. Let's start off by talking. This past Monday, the SEC revealed the order. I guess we already knew the opponents, but we revealed the order of the 10 games South Carolina will be playing this year. Let's just run through the games real quick. We start at home versus Tennessee, then away against Florida, and then Vanderbilt, and then back home against Auburn, away to LSU. You got a bye week, home versus Texas A&M, at Ole Miss, at home versus Missouri, and then Georgia, and then finishing on the road at Kentucky. Ben, real quick, what were your general thoughts on this schedule? Well, as I kind of went through it, the first thing I thought was there really is no good way to like dole out five preseason top 13 teams in a 10-game schedule. Like, There's no way that it wasn't either going to be a little lumpy or a little concentrated and tough opponents, or you weren't going to have just a really unpleasant every other week. So, you know, it, it was going to be tough. It was going to be weird. And I think that going back a little bit to when they first assigned the opponents, South Carolina got a little bit of a bad draw in terms of the fact that if they could have gotten either Ole Miss or Kentucky at home, that would make those games considerably more winnable. And right now, they kind of need—they kind of needed every single mid to low tier SEC opponent outside of, I guess, Missouri and uh, Vanderbilt, and I guess Arkansas. If they'd gotten them at home, if possible. Yeah, when you're in South Carolina's position, coming off a tough year, and you have to face uh, a schedule full of all-conference opponents, I guess there, it was never going to look easy. No, there wasn't really, there wasn't a situation where you'd say, oh, that looks kind of favorable. That's, that's pretty good. No, it was going to be a gauntlet, and there was no way to get around that. As you said, it it didn't seem like it got very lumped up in terms of a, a lot of really tough or really easy opponents in a row. But if you did have to identify what you thought would be, say, the, the toughest stretch of the season, what, what would you pick? Probably the month of October into early November. Going to Florida, hosting Vanderbilt. Hosting Vanderbilt's good. But going to Florida, two weeks later, hosting Auburn. One week later, going to LSU. Then you get yourself a nice bye, and then Texas A&M comes to town. I mean, that is unpleasant. That is six weeks, five games, four of them top 13 opponents, and two of them are on the road to boot. So if South Carolina does anything but go one and four, that's a victory for the coaching staff. That's a victory for just the team overall, because one and four is probably what your base is going to be. If you do worse than one and four, oh boy, it's going to be not a good season. But if if they somehow escape that stretch three and two, they'll be in pretty great shape. And also that opener against Tennessee becomes a massive swing game because in theory, that's probably your fifth easiest game. 
and this team needs to you know, if they want to go bowling, if bowls even exist, getting to five wins is is the prerogative. Yeah, you you stole my next question. That opening game against Tennessee is going to be so crucial, it seems like. And it, it might be the best game in the conference that opening weekend. Oh, it definitely is, because most of the conference late, the opening weekend is kind of garbage. Like, four, I think it's four new coaches against the four best teams in the conference. It's going to be pretty unpleasant outside of that Tennessee game. Now, the question is going to be, how does South Carolina make it look different than last year? Because they got mollywopped in the second half. And it's kind of interesting to look back because I was thinking, is this the, you know, how important is of an opener is this? And it realistically actually is probably slightly less important than last year's opener. Because last year's opener, if they lost, was going to put them way behind the eight ball. And they did lose. And they were way behind the eight ball pretty much the whole year, at least until they upset Georgia. And then were a little less behind the eight ball. But in this case, that first game isn't exactly must win. But if you don't win it, you realistically probably have to go 4-0 and against the four worst teams. And then pull off an upset against one of those top 13 teams. And... That's super not easy. And especially if you're good enough to do that, you hopefully are good enough to beat Tennessee at home. And going back to that toughest stretch you mentioned, it does seem at least those last four games at Ole Miss, uh, home versus Missouri, then you got Georgia, but then at Kentucky, that might be at least a chance to end the season on a little bit of a strong strong note. That might be their best opportunity, I should say. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think Ole Miss is just a wild card because they have talent and now they have Lane Kiffin. So the question is, what does that do in year one? Again, to you know, go back to a subject Gamecocks fans don't like, uh, North Carolina was kind of in a similar boat. You put a new coaching staff with a talented roster, and the team got okay enough to beat South Carolina. Missouri at home, I think, should be winnable. At least the numbers say they should be winnable. Georgia, I mean, who knows? Georgia's just a cipher. They should be very good and talented, but they're also breaking in a new QB. And if things go kind of sideways, they won't be in the best of moods. Plus they have the memory of, you know, last year. And then Kentucky, I think ESPN put South Carolina at a 37% chance to win that game. And Kentucky obviously has been a thorn in the side of Gamecocks fans. And it's going to be probably pretty chilly up in Lexington on December 5th. So it's going to be interesting to say the least, how South Carolina can cap a season and also kind of where they are to, you know, give that capper some meaning. Hey there. Like what you hear? Good news. You can help ensure the state continues making journalism you love to read, watch, and listen to. If you're more into sports than news, you'd probably like our Sports Pass membership, which gives you access to unlimited sports coverage for just $30 for the first year. Subscribe to Sports Pass at thestate.com slash sportspass. You can also read more Gamecocks news by downloading the Go Gamecocks app or by signing up for our newsletter at thestate.com slash newsletters. Thanks for supporting local journalism. Now, back to today's episode. Of course, December 5th is a long way away. Let's bring it back to the present a little bit. South Carolina has just started preseason camp after pushing it back a few weeks because the SEC adjusted the start of the season. So we were not able to go to practice like we normally are for camps, but we you know, are able to see some footage. We're talking to Coach Muschamp, and we're going to talk to Coach Bobo and Coach T-Rob on Thursday. Let's start, I mean, with, I think, where all the questions are at the QB position. Ryan Holinsky's coming back after a up-and-down freshman season. 
and Colorado State transfer Colin Hill. He's torn his ACL three times, but he does have a lot of experience with Mike Bobo, and he's considered you know, a contender for that starting QB spot. What's your read on that situation? Well, going through a lot of the offseason, it seemed like even though the school was sort of, or the, the team had sort of tried to make the, the case that Hill wasn't coming to be a, se- a second QB coach and a clipboard, clipboard holder, there was a lot of sentiment that that might be the way it was going. That happens a lot in this sport. Veteran QBs from smaller schools go to bigger schools, get ready for coaching careers, whatever. It's based on reports, other rumblings, that kind of stuff. It's sounding like that was not correct. It's sounding like Colin Hill has a very good chance to start. Colin Hill might have even been a little bit of a favorite heading into this thing, though El Muschamp would not speak directly to any of that, obviously. It sounded like since they got back, uh, he was impressing a lot of people. I think in a lot of offenses, a quarterback, the number one job is just get the ball to the playmakers. Know what you're doing. Know what's being asked of you. Get the ball out. Let those guys do what they do. And I think he's a kind of quarterback who can do that. I think he's got the ability to do that. I've heard that he might be a little bit better of a runner than some people think. His numbers at Colorado State, not great on that front, but obviously Ryan Holinsky, not not a high-end runner either. And so we'll just kind of have to see. I mean, I think that, I think Holinsky probably has more baseline talent, but he's playing more catch-up. And one thing that kind of popped to me in Ryan Holinsky speaking to the school's video people after the first practices, Holinsky, I think he brought up footwork twice and I think was maybe asked about it a third time. And under center footwork is different than shotgun footwork because there's a lot of turning your back. There's a lot of different sort of elements to that. And a lot of quarterbacks aren't taught that these days. And then you've got Colin Hill, who's done it for four years. So I think that could be, you know, one of those things that bears watching. And I don't know if that gives him a massive advantage, but if things are mostly equal and Ryan Holinsky's still getting down that footwork, maybe that makes a difference. I mean, how key is that familiarity with Bobo's system? Because Hill played under him at Colorado State, and Ryan Holinsky didn't get as much of the spring practice to acclimate to Bobo's system as we all thought he would. And that really seems to be what most people say is one of Hill's best attributes, is that just that familiarity. Yes, he was hurt a lot, but he's been around a long time, and he just knows it. Well, from talking to Hill and Prentice before they enrolled, it sounds like they put a lot on the quarterback's shoulders. There's a lot of checks to make. A lot of, you know, getting teams in and out of the run game. Obviously, a lot of offenses require that. He knows more of it. Some of it just depends how fast Ryan Holinsky catches up. But I just think overall command and overall kind of leadership, that kind of stuff is going to carry whoever wins this battle. And I think that even if someone might have had a lead coming into camp, there's enough time to prove that for, for the for the other guy to prove that they can take that job, but it's kind of it's crunch time. Like every one of these practices counts, and I think Muschamp said we're nine practices, I guess eight practices now away from the first scrimmage, and those scrimmages for the quarterbacks, it seems like they carry a lot of weight. You mentioned the importance of playmakers in Coach Mike Bobo's system. South Carolina has a lot of question marks there. They lose their top receiver, Brian Edwards, from a year ago. Their top, I think, three running backs from a year ago as well. Let's start at wide receiver. No Brian Edwards. Shai Smith seems like the de facto number one. But after him, things get really murky really fast, it seems like. Yep. Uh, We're in a situation in which Muschamp kind of rattled off the next, 
I think he said five guys that he sort of was confident could contribute, and they were in order. Uh, a sophomore who caught nine passes last year, who Muschamp has kind of erroneously been saying was a high school quarterback, even though he was mostly a high school receiver who played a little quarterback, played quarterback as a senior. Next up, you had a former quarterback in Dakarian Joyner, who has less than a year of full-time receiver experience. Then Rico Powers, a really precocious freshman who I think is going to be pretty good. And then Luke Doty, who was the Elite 11 quarterback signee in the last class. So that is a, a very eclectic group and doesn't even account for two four-stars in Josh Van and uh, Ortray Smith, who are both talented, but both between injury and just kind of inconsistency haven't really established themselves. So it's going to be really weird if that top five that I mentioned ends up being their top five going into the season. They're really hoping that they can get transfer Jalen Brooks available because even if there's some challenges moving up from the Division II level, they just need dudes they can rely on. And they clearly, by adding him this late, they hope he can be that kind of guy. You mentioned Xavier Loguette as that sophomore that played a little bit of QB. It does seem like he flashed a decent bit of a potential last year. He's definitely a fast, fast twitch guy who could be a threat on the outside. Yeah, he kind of fits the mold of uh, Brian McClendon, the former receivers coach, was fond of describing a lot of the receivers he got as uh, as lumps of clay that you got to mold. And Leggett certainly fits that. He tended to get a lot of bigger guys, straight line, fast guys. And a lot of those guys are still on the roster and aren't producing at this point. Now, I think Leggett probably has, at least has gotten the most shine of any of those guys. And I think he certainly has the ability. It's just a matter of translating it, pulling it all together. If nothing else, he'll be given a lot of opportunities because it, it, it ain't like they have much proven to, for him to get stuck behind. Speaking of you know not having people that are super proven, the running back position is about as wide open as you could possibly get. Folks, that is a professional segue. Let's appreciate it. I mean, right now... I think all the fans and probably the coaching staff want to see the success of of Marshawn Lloyd, the freshman highest rated offensive recruit of the Muschamp era, just a superstar player who played at a big time conference in the D.C. area. In the limited spring practices that he was a part of, Muschamp had a lot of praise for him. Is it Marshawn Lloyd or bust in the backfield for South Carolina? Um, I don't think it's Marshawn Lloyd or bust, though I think Marshawn Lloyd's going to be really, really, really good. A video of him during drills might have snuck out at some point. He might have thrown a spin move that was just savage on one of the backup linebackers. It was not the kind of thing that should be shown to children. I think he'll be very good. I know also Ryan Holinsky, after the first practice, you know, jokingly referenced uh, him basically jump-cutting across the entire offensive line and you know, completely reversing field and befuddling defenses. I think he'll be good. Saquandre White's the guy I want to watch because Saquandre White, I think, is a really, really, really high-level athlete. I mean, he made 22 tackles as a linebacker for Florida State, and based on him leaving, you know, the year after he was moved to linebacker, one might imagine he probably didn't enjoy the position very much, and he still managed to put up some numbers. So I think he is a really talented player. Now, does that all come together? He enrolled a little bit late. He's got to figure out some stuff. You know, it's tricky. But if he becomes a guy that they can just hand the ball to and tell him, you know, go make some plays, I think he's got the ability to do that. I know last year, South Carolina went with kind of a two-headed backfield. They might go a little deeper this year. But if you told me right now that as a Quandre White, Marshawn Lloyd backfield was sort of where this ended up, I wouldn't be surprised. 
Speaking of great segues and talented freshmen, let's talk about Jordan Birch. Less good segue. Less good segue by a lot. I'm trying. All right, Jordan Birch, obviously the the crown jewel of this past year's recruiting class. Five-star hometown kid, defensive end, tackle, you know, premium position. How much do you think he can contribute as a freshman? How much can he contribute? Uh, That is is a tricky one. I think he'll be a presence. I think he probably, at worst, is sort of a presence like like Zach Pickens was last year in that he was talented. He carved out a solid role in the rotation, but he probably wasn't quite as impactful and notable as, say, you know, his recruiting stars might have led you to believe. That that I'm saying is kind of a floor, at least in my opinion. I think his ceiling could be he could start and be an impact playmaker. That might sound a little bold, but you know what? If you're a top 10 national recruit, a lot of those guys do just that. Again, not fair to compare him to Clowney, but, you know, Clowney was, it was like day four of camp when Steve Spurrier joked he was wearing out all the offensive tackles. I, I mean, I think he has the ability to do that. Now, he's competing with Brad Johnson, who's a good, solid player who probably hasn't really yet played up to his full talent level. So some of that will be kind of defined by what kind of Brad Johnson shows up. I know Johnson had bulked up uh, his first two years. He's now, at least according to the official listing, slim back down. So I don't know if that's good or bad for to, to be a 235-pound buck, but it certainly opens the door for Birch to add a little beef. And again, Jordan Birch was is a super talented player, and if he delivers, he totally could be a star pretty quickly. You talk about the buck position that Birch and Brad Johnson are playing. Just give us a quick primer on what that means. So the buck is this sort of weird hybrid spot that players can play with a hand on the ground uh, edge rushers can play with a hand on the ground or standing up it requires some linebacker style stuff you know pass drops sometimes sometimes bucks will even be out defending you know slot receivers not really defending them but playing short zones and stuff and it requires a little bit more of a learning curve though at times it seems like sometimes they can shuffle people through the learning curve if they're talented enough and just say go be a pass rusher and it kind of allows this sort of multifaceted defense where you can be in 4-3 personnel, but that can turn into a 3-4. Or, and in some situations, the Bucks and Sams are a little bit interchangeable, the strong side linebackers. And then you have, you know, sort of two edge guys. But yeah, it's a, it's a little bit more of a space player and usually is also your most freakish pass rusher. It's where they played Dante Fowler back when he was at uh, Florida. So certainly the kind of place where if you have a player like Jordan Birch, you can just say, go cause some havoc. That's an early look at training camp. Of course, we haven't really talked about the elephant in the room of the coronavirus pandemic and COVID-19 and the Big Ten and Pac-12 postponing with hopes of playing in the spring. No guarantee that they will. As of right now, the SEC is still going, obviously. That's why we're talking. But I think it's a question we're all going to, you know, constantly be talking about for the next six weeks that as much as every position battle will be analyzed it'll be will we even be playing in december what do you think ben um at the moment i'm i have basically set it up in my mind that i'm not going to believe football is going to happen up until the moment it actually starts happening and that's not to be pessimistic it's just that there are so many layers to get through the SEC moved the games back in part, they said, because we want to see how campus stuff goes 
and we want to see how the NFL goes. And what's interesting on that is kind of two fronts. If the NFL can pull it off, it seems kind of debatable because NFL scenarios are just different. The, the lifestyle is different than college. But at the very least, that's sort of a weird fail-safe. If the, NFL, if the NFL can't pull it off, colleges probably have to pull the plug too. The other one is the campuses, which is weirder because in theory, a campus that doesn't have in-person learning is more bubble-like than a campus that is fully operating. However, on the flip side, it seems like universities that pull back uh, in terms of students, that seems to cast more doubt when it comes to football. So that's this sort of tricky, weird situation. I mean, I think a lot of it's just going to be wading through whatever early spikes happen and seeing how people react. I know UNC has already uh, punted on in-person learning for the semester. I think Michigan, Michigan State wasn't going to have football anyway, but I believe they've told kids not to come. Uh, Notre Dame has pushed stuff online for a couple weeks and is sort of figuring that out. So we're really early in this game in terms of how these things work out across the next six weeks. And I think one thing that's been notable with this pandemic is a lot of the time people will stop and say, well, in this moment this place isn't bad or this situation looks like this. And it often doesn't have a ton of bearing four weeks down the line. So a lot of that I say is a wait and see because, I mean, shoot, the the NBA bubble looks great now, but it still has, you know, more than a month to finish out. So I'm I'm going into all of this saying I'll accept that Games are happening when they're actually happening, and I'll accept that they've pulled off a season when we have an SEC champion in December. And something that I think bears saying is the fact that, obviously, we want the season to happen, right? I think no one would be happier than you to be able to watch football at Williams-Brice Stadium. But uh, we got to be realistic, right? Yeah. I'm not saying these things because I have any desire for there not to be football. I, I literally was looking at Twitter, and I think... Maybe Brett McMurphy reported that some Big 12 openers are on September 1st, and I thought about how weird it was going would would be to how weird it would be to say, "Huh, I don't have a real work week because it's still practice season, but I can watch actual snippets of Big 12 football." And I very much want these things to happen. They keep me working and prevent me from having to think about furloughs or anything else. So. Yes, there there are people in the world that imagine that many people are rooting for these things not to happen, and that is, that is just not how the world works. Well, we will stay up to date on this situation as it keeps on going, and we'll keep you informed of preseason camp as it progresses. So keep on visiting GoGameCox.com for the latest coverage, and we will release new episodes in the run-up to the season, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.